Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello Hattie. Hi Kate, good to see you. And thanks to our supporter BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. We're particularly enthusiastic about today's episode because we've got the amazing Joanne Harris as our guest author. Yes, she's going to be talking about her latest book, A Narrow Door. And we've also been chatting to John Cochran, the outgoing Chief Executive of Hampshire County Council. He's going to be talking to us about some of his recommended reads. It's a great time for libraries at the moment, as like everyone else, we're really, really looking forward to life returning to normal, in line, of course, with government guidelines. Yes, uh, take a look at our website for more information about our services and about what we're doing to keep everyone safe and reassured as public places open up. We'll be talking about other library updates later on in the episode, but for now, let's hear from our guest author, Joanne Harris. If you think you're familiar with Joanne's writing already, you might want to think again, because while she's best known for her multi-million bestseller, Chocolat, I reckon her books don't fit neatly into just one genre. Yeah, this was really interesting. Looking through her back catalogue, she's covered France, cookery books, romance, psychological thrillers, vampires, Norse mythology, fairy tales, self-help, advice for authors, and even a Doctor Who novel. It's quite a range. And she was only the fifth British female novelist to join the Millionaire Authors Club. Um, That's not to do with money. It's actually the list of authors who've had at least one of their books sell more than a million copies in the UK. Pretty impressive stuff. And in the interview for this episode, she's talking about A Narrow Door, which comes out in a couple of weeks. It's the sequel to Gentlemen and Players, which is the first in the series, and Different Class, which is the second. Yeah, these are the novels set at St Oswald's Boys Grammar School in the north of England, and they feature the eccentric Latin master Roy Straitley. I think they're such a different tone from her other books. They're really dark and very funny. Although, as she says in the interview, there's perhaps less difference than you might at first think between the subjects she covers in her books. So here's Kate talking to Joanne. Now, you might hear a bit of background noise because there were some builders working on Joanne's road during the recording. The interview starts with Joanne reading a short piece from the start of the book. find that men like you underestimate women like me. You think we must be damaged somehow, that we seek power to compensate for some real or imagined injustice, that we must hate men for the way they have excluded women from their boys clubs, holding them back, abusing them, exploiting them for centuries. Well, yes, you may have a point. Some things make a woman fight back, and some things though they challenge us, only make us stronger. A woman headmaster. To you, it must seem a reversal of everything you believe. How did we come to this, you ask? How has the world been so overturned? Women like me, you tell yourself, should be this way for a reason. Our drive to succeed comes from weakness, you think. Rage, or hate, or fear or insecurity, and that's why I'll win. Because you believe in the essential weakness of women in authority. But sitting in my office now, reading the names on the honours boards that decorate the panelled walls, 
I feel a sense of rightness. This is my office. This is my desk. My orchids on the window ledge. My parking space under the window. My coffee machine. My cup. My school. I earned this job. I belong here. And I have nothing more to prove. St. Oswald's, with all its history, with all its relentless patriarchal baggage, is mine. And today I sit in the headmaster's chair and will stand at the lectern this morning in assembly as the new, new head, a title that in 500 years has never gone to a woman before, and address a school filled with boys and girls and lead them out of the wilderness. An old St. Oswald's proverb goes, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a woman to enter these gates. Well, not only have I entered, but now the gates are my gates and the rules are my rules. The mistake you made was one of scale. Men always do, used as they are to taking the main entrance. Women must be more discreet. All we need is a narrow door. And when we have crept in unseen, like a spider through a keyhole, we spin ourselves an empire of silk and fill you with astonishment. I'm really very fond of you, Roy. Don't think that because I opposed you last year, I don't have a lot of respect for you. But you are part of the old school and I belong to the future. I don't suppose you know what that's like. You've always been part of St. Oswald's. Man and boy, you always belonged. You never needed the narrow door. And even after what happened last year, you still believe I have a heart. How little you know me, straightly. I have survived more setbacks than you could ever imagine. I had my daughter at 17 without ever naming the father. I entered teaching at 23 in a school very like St. Oswald's. I fought for my place every step of the way through prejudice, sexism and judgment. I have survived a double mastectomy without confiding in anyone. I have survived the death of a spouse, an elder sibling, a love affair. I have seen my parents die. My daughter moved to America. I have committed two murders, one a crime of passion, the other a crime of convenience. I'm barely 40 years old and finally I'm starting to reap the harvest my ambitions have sown. This is my time, Mr. Straitley. And no, I am not damaged. I am whole. This is the third, and I'm not going to say the last. There was a series of novels set at St. Oswald's Grammar School in the town of Malbury in the north of England. And they all feature Roy Straitley, the school's old-fashioned Latin master, who I think is one of the most engaging characters in contemporary fiction. <laughs> I love him really too. He's just wonderful. Um, now, you've really cleverly written this series so that each book works as a standalone novel. But would you tell us how this book continues on from Different Class, which was the second in the trilogy? Well, it's a year after Different Class, as Different Class was a year after Gentlemen and Players. Straightly is quite old, so I can't leave too long between these books because, you know, he's, he's already past retirement age. And so um, Different Class was a kind of upheaval. Um, a slightly different one to the one in Gentlemen and Players, but one just as traumatic. Straitly survived it, as he always does, by a kind of miracle. But he has lost his best friend, and in circumstances that are particularly troubling to him, he, he has a strong feeling that his best friend was an abuser of boys. 
And because the man is now dead, he's never really going to get to the bottom of this. And it's shaken straightly a lot. He's not quite aware of how badly it's shaken him, but uh, he has lost a big part of his life and a lot of his confidence. He's also lost the head. Uh, he, he's quite used to losing heads because heads disappear pretty much every year at St. Oswald's and uh, now has a new head who happens to be the deputy headmistress um, who was introduced as part of the crisis team to deal with St. Oswald's failing finances and failing curricula last year. Um, she is now stepping up to, to be the new head and in a school like St. Oswald's, where women are barely tolerated anyway, she is very much a new broom. Uh, she's introduced all kinds of, of alarming novelties, including girls in the school, uh, which straightly again, yeah, he has nothing in principle against girls, but he kind of feels that, you know, they're, they're inappropriate in the classroom. And so he's having to get used to um, a quite sharp learning curve. There is a new building too. Um, a new sports building, which is being erected just before the beginning of term within sight of uh, Straitley's beloved room 58 in the bell tower. Um, and this is where the story starts. This is where a group of Straitley's Brody boys discover what they think is a body. Like the previous books in the series, it's it's written as a, a dialogue between two first-person narratives. And it's depicted as... A, as as it was before, as a kind of chess game between Straitley, who's depicted in the book as the, the White King, uh, and Becky, or La Buckfast, as the Black Queen. And these are two really different voices. Did you find it enjoyable to inhabit Straitley's personality once again? Oh, always. I'm very fond of Straitley. Um, if, if I'd stayed in teaching for long enough, I think I would have become very like him. But I did know a lot of masters who were very like Straitley, and so doing his voice isn't difficult to me. There were a lot of those tweed jackets and old codgers and old sweeties and, and these, these definitions that Straitley gives to other members of staff. He has a kind of playful way of categorising his colleagues um, into tweed jackets or suits or young guns or yoghurts, low-fat yoghurts, they're usually the women, or dragons, and La Buckfast, as he calls her, the headmistress, is, is slightly unquantifiable. Um, he has a respect for her. He thinks that she's probably a dragon in waiting. And although he disapproves of her enormously, uh, she does turn out to be an interesting adversary. I really enjoyed the way Straitley describes his little group of rather subversive but favoured pupils as the Brodie boys, which is, of course, a nod to the prime of Miss Jean Brodie and her Brodie girls. Uh, Straitley's a very different character from Brodie. He's not so manipulative and he's a very compassionate character, but he is perhaps a kind of similar thorn in the side of uh, school authorities as uh, Jean Brodie was. Yes, I think he is. He is a, a bit of a loose cannon. And he knows it. He is, he is a throwback hanging on for dear life. He believes that Latin should be an important part of the curriculum. The, the management of school doesn't really think so. And they're constantly trying to either persuade him to leave or, or to make his subject irrelevant. And he always manages to stay, partly because he loves the place. And also he hasn't really got anything else. He doesn't have any family. He doesn't have any friends outside of his school colleagues. Um, and he has devoted his whole life to his duty as a schoolmaster. This is not a modern schoolmaster image at all. He's, he's very much part of an old tradition, which is very much dying out. 
Um, and he knows it and he's just hanging on as long as he can because he just can't envisage himself in retirement. It's through the character of Becky Buckfast that you explore one of the main themes of the book, which is obviously outlined in the reading that you've just given. So it's what it means to be a woman in a very patriarchal school and in patriarchal society more generally, which obviously links to the, the title of the book. So I get the sense that Becky was another voice that you really relished inhabiting. Uh, so could you talk perhaps a bit more about the attitudes Becky has, the kind of treatment women get, but also how she deals with that treatment? Because she's got quite an un, maybe not a traditional feminist approach to how she deals with it. Yes, she's an interesting woman because she, she has gone through a number of transformations. From Becky Price, which is her incarnation as a youthful um, mistress at King Henry's Grammar School, which is another boys' school not far from St Oswald's, which has traditionally been a bit of a rival establishment, and her current incarnation as uh, Rebecca Buckfast, the headmistress of St Oswald's, and it's been a sharp ascendance. And she has done a lot of uh, a lot of rather questionably, morally questionable things to uh, to get where she is. Um, she is well aware that she's living in a patriarchy which is dominated um, and geared towards benefiting men. She has been passionately angry about this ever since her, her childhood, her adolescence. She has reasons for this. And um, we go into her past at some, at some length because that is really what makes her who she is. But she isn't, you're right, she isn't a true feminist in the sense that although she is aware of injustice and she is very aware of wanting to change it for her own benefit. She isn't really interested in helping the sisterhood. She doesn't really have any, any female friends as such. She, she is quite happy to use men and to use whatever techniques she has at her command to manipulate them. She isn't above the odd murder. She is absolutely focused on getting what she wants. But yes, she is a victim of injustice in all sorts of ways. And as a young female teacher at King Henry's Grammar School in the, the 80s, she's, um, she's very much a victim of prejudice and bullying and, and all kinds of unpleasantness. And she, she is tough. She is a damaged individual in all kinds of ways, but she is also quite capable of fighting back and, and using any weapon that she has at her command to, to get to her enemies and to, and to bring down what she sees as an unfair system. Yeah, and I understand that some of uh, Becky's experiences when she was a very young teacher were similar to some of your own experiences, and also that, <laughs> that gender divisions is an issue Do you feel quite strongly about yourself. Is that the case? I do feel strongly about it, and although I'm not, I am not uh, Becky in any way, um, I did borrow a little bit from my own experience since I was a teacher for nearly 15 years at a place called Lee's Grammar School a boys' school in Yorkshire, which isn't a million miles away from St. Oswald's as was. Um, it has now gone co-ed, as St. Oswald's has gone co-ed, although I hope not under the same circumstances. But yes, it was, it was a time when I think I arrived, I was about 24 or 25, and I was part of an, an enormous staff, consisting mostly of men. I was part of, of, of a staff where there were maybe half a dozen women teachers, most of them significantly older than I was. And there are some little episodes that I've given to Becky Price, as she was then, 
that, that did happen to me, being mistaken for a boy because I was wearing a trouser suit, being told off because I didn't realise that there was a dress code that meant that women weren't allowed to wear trousers, challenging that dress code in a very particular way by pulling a stunt which uh, horrified the second master who had called me up and told me to wear a frock. I got my own back and I eventually got to wear the trouser suit in just exactly the way that I wanted to and, and uh, exactly the way Becky Price got her way too. So yeah, I had I had a lot of fun. But unlike Becky, I, I really loved my job. I loved the place. I, I loved the environment, which is why I'm still writing about a version of it now. Well, so what do you think it is about a school then that makes it such a rich source of stories um, and such a great <laughs> setting for a book? Well, I was the child of two teachers. And when teachers marry, all their friends are teachers. All their social life revolves around teaching. And so as a small child, I was surrounded by stories of teaching. And I realized even then that schools are a kind of factory of stories and drama and tragedy and farce and personal grievances and hidden scandals. And there is just everything there. I mean, in a sense, I've been writing about teaching from the beginning because I do tend to write about small communities and the pressures that they undergo and the changes that new arrivals make to small communities and how the volatile chemistry of the small community can be utterly disrupted by what seems to be a relatively trivial change. I've written about this even when I wasn't apparently writing about schools at all, because actually communities have their own dynamic. And anybody who has worked in a school or a hospital or an office or who has lived in a place where they know their neighbours know exactly what I mean. And, and everybody has encountered some some form of close-knit small community. I even wrote about the communities that we form on the internet and their intensity and also their potential danger. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because as soon as you've got people and the kind of everyday tensions that drive them, then you have, you have stories waiting to happen. Another thing which really stood out for me when I was reading was, was how you managed to make such day-to-day -day objects so eerie and spooky. I don't think I've ever been quite so on the edge of my seat when reading about noises from a wash basin before. So is stirring up this kind of emotion something that gives you great satisfaction as a writer? Oh, I think so, yes. I think that although I, I, I have moved on from writing out-and-out -out horror, you know, of course, that my, my very first novel was, was a vampire novel, I do like the everyday unease of ordinary things. I think you don't have to go far to find a story and you don't have to go far to find something which is intrinsically troubling and scary. And I, I've always found that the, the most frightening things are the everyday things that either don't behave quite as you expect them to or sometimes just misbehave. And, and because to, some, to a certain extent, this... It's not exactly a supernatural story, but there are definitely ghosts in it. Rebecca Buckfast is a woman absolutely haunted by her past. And so the fact of, of this pops up in these, these episodes. I, I'm aware that A Narrow Door is not quite like the previous books in that there is a strong element or at least a strong suggestion of the supernatural in it. I'm not going to go in too much why, because that, that I would quite like to be people to read it for themselves. But I wanted to, to suggest her frame of mind at the time. And because she is 
she is a damaged individual. She is struggling to understand the cause of something traumatic that happened in her early childhood. She sees things in a certain way. And so she tends to see ghosts everywhere, including in the, in the wash basin at school. And, and actually Leeds Grammar School used to have some very noisy plumbing, which, which often caused hiccups and belches to come from, uh, from the wash basins and the pipes. We also had mice and quite possibly rats. And so we had it. It was, it was an odd place. And having worked there late in the evenings on my own, it could be quite a spooky place, too. And so, you know, the idea that a school could be a good place for a ghost story was, was, not, uh, was not new to me at all. I also really love the way that you threaded sort of classical and biblical allusions through the book, which I felt somehow rooted it in Straitley's world. For example, the references to the rivers of the underworld and also the depiction of Becky as a Scheherazade, teller of tales. Yes. Um, but I also really enjoyed the repeated reference to this really strange biblical story of the, of the bees nesting in the lion that's been killed by Samson. For anyone listening, if you didn't already know that that is behind the logo for Lyle's Golden Syrup, you should take a look <laughs> inside your kitchen cupboard and you might be surprised. So were these inclusions a reflection of your own interests or a reflection of Straitley's or maybe they were a reflection of both? Oh, they were both. They were both. I've, I've always been interested in these things anyway. Um, I think it was, it's part of, of creating Straitley's and Rebecca's voices that I, I, you know, I gave them certain kind of leitmotifs in, in terms of their thinking and their narrative. Straitly is thinking a great deal about death at the moment, partly because his best friend had died. And so his, his references to Lethe and the various rivers of death are a kind of reflection of his, his mental state. He doesn't articulate the fact that he is clearly undergoing a kind of grief depression, but he is. Um, as for as for Becky, she becomes Scheherazade because, of course, this book is a story within a story. It's not just an interchange and a power play between Becky and Straitly. It is also Becky using the power of stories to hold Straitly at bay because she has excellent reasons for, for wanting Straitly to hold off revealing the fact that there is what may be a body underneath the new building. And so to, to hold him off from doing this, she, she tells him a story which is supposed to lead to the identity of this body. But it goes through a number of turns and reversals, very like the rivers of hell, in fact. And, and so she becomes Scheherazade. She is literally keeping her audience wrapped with her story to save her life. And I quite like this. I've always admired Scheherazade. I've always thought Scheherazade was a kind of subversive feminist heroine in that although she is supposed to be the one who is powerless, she is actually the one who holds all the cards. And, and Becky Buckfast is very similar in this way, but she has a story to tell and she's telling it for a number of reasons, not all of which are clear even to her. I think partly this is a story, but it's also a confession. And it's something that she hasn't told anybody ever in her life before, and that's important. It's, it's reflective of how much she... She does respect Straitly and she understands that he is her true opponent in this. Now, golden syrup isn't the only sugary reference in the book. Uh, bourbon biscuits also take a recurring role, as, of course, to licorice all sorts, which is a real weakness of Roy Straitly's. 
And at one point it suggested that you might be able to judge a person's character from whatever their choice is for their favourite licorice all sort, which I thought was just a great idea. So am I right in saying that you also share a weakness for these sweets? And uh, if so, what does your choice say about you? Well, it's it's an interesting one. I'm not sure I do because actually I don't like licorice very much, although I do, I do like licorice all sorts because to me they're a sort of nostalgic trip from my childhood. But I always used to leave the ones that were just licorice because I just see, didn't see the point of them. And I would peel the outside from the coconut rolls and leave the inside because I wasn't really all that fond of licorice and tried to avoid eating it. My grandfather liked licorice and to me licorice all sorts are absolutely the kind of thing that that straightly would like, because they're an old-fashioned sweet, but also they have a sort of quirky, colourful charm to them. And this reference about being able to to tell your personality from your favourite is, of course, a direct reference to chocolat. But I wanted to put a little bit in there where where Straitly is offering Buckfast um, a licorice all sort, and she plays with the idea of selecting the pink coconut roll, which she instead is her personality. It's sweet on the the outside but it conceals this dark and bitter heart and eventually she tells straightly no she doesn't feel that she wants to reveal that much of herself and he takes it as a joke and it absolutely isn't. Now I would say that any reader who's only familiar with your French novels might be surprised the St Oswald books are so darkly funny. They are very (laughs) darkly funny and also they are beautifully plotted psychological thrillers. But I would say it's the case that throughout your writing, your subject matter has always been, it's kind of been uniquely wide ranging. I was trying to think of another author who dips into such a wide range. You've got, obviously you've got the Chocolat series, and but there's folklore, fairy tale, gothic novels, cookery books, a self-help book for, for uh, authors, and even a Doctor Who story. So uh, have you ever felt pressure from your fans or from your publishers to keep within a a smaller range of genres? No, I don't think so. And even if I had had pressure, I don't think it would have helped. It it certainly wouldn't have helped them get what they wanted because it's not the way I operate. And much as I understand the the convenience and, and the financial interest of being a brand who does the same thing predictably every year, I just couldn't do that. I'm I'm not like that. What drives me to a certain extent is an element of discovery and an element of risk. So everything that I do has to be a step forward, an exploration, an experiment in something new, because actually to write something utterly safe would be to me to have lost my way and missed the point. And so I do, I do write across a number of different areas, but I do maintain also that actually the difference is not as big as people think it is. I mean, you know, people look at my French books and they think they couldn't possibly have anything to do with Matt Oswald's books. But actually, you know what? Chocolat is another story about a woman entering a deeply patriarchal society, mixing it up with the community involved, causing a rupture taking sides, bringing about change within the small community. This isn't a million miles away from what Rebecca Buckfast does to King Henry's school and St. Oswald's school. It's not a million miles away to what Loki does with the gods living in Asgard. It's, you know, we're not not that far thematically, even though sometimes genre is such an overwhelming 
presence to to people, particularly people in publishing, that they they don't necessarily see that I'm just very often exploring similar things, just with slightly different methods. I do like to ask writers about their attitudes towards libraries, and because we're a podcast about libraries, tell me, have you got memories from childhood? Do you have feelings about the role that libraries play in society today? I'd, I'd love to hear about them. Oh, I, I love libraries. I've always loved libraries. Libraries were an enormous part of my childhood. You know, I, I, I went to the library every week from the age of seven, which was from my seventh birthday, in fact, which was the day I was allowed to join the library. And I looked forward to this day and my parents took me to the library. And it was in Barnsley Town Hall at the time. It was on the top floor. And you had to go up these, these rather fantastic marble stairs, which became these wooden stairs, which became these dusty, rickety stairs, which became this, this wonderful place, like a cathedral of books. And I remember arriving there and having a rather forbidding librarian whose name was Mrs. Potter. And when I tried to go into the, 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 the library of books, the big library, she said, oh, no, no, you must join the children's library, which was a shelf. It was just a shelf. And I had finished the shelf by the time, you know, by the time you could blink. And I was constantly coming and peering into the adult library until eventually she allowed me to have one adult library ticket per month, as long as the book I selected would, would be suitable. And I didn't know exactly what she thought would be suitable. My mother had a lot of feelings about what was suitable and what wasn't. And so my parents would drop me off at the library on Saturday mornings, and they would go and do their shopping. And then they would come and pick me up. And during that time, which was usually about an hour and a half, I would read omnivorously everything that I knew would not be suitable. And then I would just choose the fattest book I could find. Because it was every month, it wasn't, you know, it had to be a book that would last me. And I would then take it to Mrs. Potter and, and, and hope that she would let it pass. And then she would ask me, and I brought it back a month later, she would ask me questions about it to, to make sure that I'd understood it. And there was a strong understanding that if I hadn't understood it or if I'd chosen frivolously, then I wouldn't get another ticket. And so it was a constant, there was a constant risk and a constant jeopardy in my visit to the library. But it was, it was wonderful because, you know, I, I couldn't afford to, to buy a lot of books. My parents couldn't afford to buy me a lot of books. Um, and so much of my reading education happened there. And um, I'm still immensely grateful to libraries and, and support them whenever I can, because I think it's not just a question of providing books for, for people. It's also a really valuable civic space. It's completely egalitarian. It's there for everybody. It's one of the few remaining important civic resources we've got. I didn't know much about Joanne Harris before I read this latest of her work. Of course, I'd read Chocolat when it came out years ago, but I came away um, an absolute super fan. I've now read the other two in the St. Oswald's trilogy, which I also loved. It really is amazing that this is the third book she's published already this year. And that's not only while dealing with lockdowns and coronavirus, but also while being treated for cancer. Oh, she's an amazing woman. I think she's absolutely brilliant. And not forgetting, of course, that she's our author of the month for July. Yes, this is Hampshire Library's monthly focus on one particular writer that we really love. 
So each month you'll find displays of that author's work and information about them at each of our libraries as well as on our library blogs. Okay, so on to the next section of our podcast, which features recommendations from one of our colleagues. This month, John Coughlin, the current Chief Executive of Hampshire County Council, is retiring and he'll be very much missed. So we thought we'd seize the opportunity while we could to find out his view on all things books. Here's Emma Noyce, who heads up Hampshire Libraries, talking to John about some of his reading recommendations and what role he sees libraries playing in their communities. So how do you ever have time to read? Have you always got a book on the go or are you somebody that has a pile of books that they think, yeah, I really want to read that and when I'm next on holiday, I'm going to go for it? I'm afraid I'm much more in the latter camp, but my little secret is I'm an English graduate, so I'm a reader by background and love literacy, love literature and love books. And I've kept reading since my university days. I know a lot of people that I went to university with who stopped reading because studying literature makes literature something of a chore sometimes if you're not careful. But I've kept reading all the way through my life, but I have to admit, particularly the last three or four years, I found it harder and harder. And I've got the pile of books as amassed and I do read on holidays and I get really into the rhythm again then. But so I'm very much looking forward to getting some time to read now when I retire. Although I'll carry on working, I hope, in some way, shape or form. I'll, I'll have more time, but I have to say the pile is pretty horrendous at the moment. It's, it's, and, and some wonderful people, have very, very kindly, as leaving gifts, knowing where my kind of um, reading interests lie, they've been giving me books as parting gifts and things. Oh, thank you very much. Oh my God, I'll be about 78 by the time I get to this. So I've got a lot, I've got a lot to do, I'm afraid. I've got a lot to do. And the other problem I've got is I'm a bit of a re-reader. I do like, so some of the books we're going to talk about I've returned to, not all of them, but some of them. And so that slows down the pile as well. So I'm afraid it's a bit of a problem, bit of a problem. I think you've brought some books in from your personal collection and I think what that says is that you are a very thoughtful reader and a reader's reader when you get time to do it. There's a, there's a breadth and depth maybe, there maybe, that are yeah, interesting. Yeah. Are there any books you've enjoyed recently and why would you recommend them? So I, I will pick Middle England to start there, Jonathan Coe. And Middle England is a fantastic, highly comic, but very kind of acerbic uh, kind of state of the nation novel. Yeah. But one of the reasons I love it is because, um, I mean, I'd, I'd give my eye teeth to meet Jonathan Coe. He's actually a Brummie contemporary of mine. Right. So he, cle- he clearly went to a school called St. Philip's in Birmingham. When it was a school, it's a sixth form college now. And I went to a Catholic grammar school not far away. And, and it was a boys' school as well. And basically, St. Philip's was a much better established, much stronger, much more academic school even than our grammar school was and as was fairly academic and there was shall we say a healthy rivalry there and when I first read I think it's his first proper novel or the first novel that got attention it's called The Rotters Club which is basically about a group of the kids in that school and you can just re- I recognise the streets I recognise the jobs that the parents were doing I recognise the pubs that they went to it's very very realistic from my point of view I can hear his accent kind of like posh brummy bit like mine kind of like kind of sanded down brummy uh, mine is Irish brummy and I can always hear an Irish brummy accent uh, and since then I've always liked returning to Jonathan Coe because I just think he's one of those writers for he doesn't do it as a series of books but he brings characters through so the characters in middle England were kids in school 
in the Rotters Club. And they're hilarious, but they're very, very, very pointed. And the more recent ones, if anything, I think are better politically. They're quite political, really, really great entertainment. And they're kind of like, you know, pacey, pacey books. I love them. And is that a theme for you, kind of big political stories told through everyday lives? Is that something that you kind of into the politics books? Yeah, I think so, probably. There's a couple of political books um, which are not fiction. Their names will come to me, which are about Brexit. All Out War. Tim Shipman is the author. Um, He's a telegraph writer. They're like thrillers. They're reference books. They're political reference books, essentially, but they're like thrillers. I'm not a political reader per se. For me, the best literature is laced in metaphor and you can read things into it. So one example of that would be, I brought the wrong one in because I think my daughter's nicked two of my favourite books, so I've had to bring in backups for them. But I'm mad for Charles Dickens. And so he fits into what you just described, you know, highly politicised, but in really, really well-disguised ways. So my choice for Charles Dickens would have been Bleak House, but I can't find it anywhere, and I'm sure the daughter's got it. I brought our mutual friend instead, similar. One of the reasons I like our mutual friend is there's a central character who's basically in the waste business. And my dad was a dustman. So I always related to that. Two of the big things in Bleak House, which really, really mean a lot to me, are child poverty, but also a legal system gone mad. It runs through Bleak House. I, and I, I love Dickens. I love his humour. I know that it's laced with sentimentality. It, that's because he was a jobbing writer. You know, he managed to put all that politics into stuff that was being read avidly on a monthly basis by a population who would queue at paper stands to buy his, his chapters. And, and so, for me, he's the kind of the linchpin. For some, you know, I love George Eliot. Uh, I, I love some of the big kind of Victorian authors. But for me, Dickens just stands apart a remarkable uh, writer and person. Absolutely, and I think you're absolutely right about him being a popular author. He'd Mm. be on our kind of fastbacks in libraries, he'd be there, and the characters are just so Yeah, and he's a popular author, but he gets away with stuff. So so we all look at Oliver Twist and we see the the musical, brilliant. I love the musical Oliver Twist. And there've been some fantastic, more kind of hard-edged, less poppy versions of Oliver Twist, but I've never seen any version of Oliver Twist which, which tries to recreate Fagan's, there's no spoiler alert here, but in the book, there's a couple of pages describing Fagan in the condemned man's cell, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just awful. And it's a, it's a bit of kind of a sideways comment about the death sentence, but it's also a commentary about this dreadful person who's yes. human at heart. Obviously, there's the anti-Semitism thing that sits in there now with the, the benefit of hindsight and retrospect. But the writing of his death cell is blood-curdlingly terrifying and depressing and sad and moving, and, but awful and necessary in his terms because of what Fagan had stood for. Ne- I've never seen any recreation of that, those two pages of writing and absolutely stunning, stunning literature. And I think he was dead in his late 50s. God knows what else could have come. He died... Too, too young. Brilliant, brilliant. Ridiculous imagination and mind, I think. Ridiculous. So you've mentioned your kind of Irish roots as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I can see from some of the books that you've brought in that yeah. Irish literary fiction is also a big thing in your life. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, of course, as is well known, um, Irish fiction is, again, the use of hyperbole language. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous how many um, astonishing authors have come from 
recent and modern Ireland. And, you know, I've mentioned I studied literature, which was great, a great privilege. And I've, I've said elsewhere recently, I'm one of the few people I know that's read Ulysses properly throughout. Uh, but I did it because it was on my curriculum. And it's an extraordinary read. And one of the things I'd like to do in retirement is return to Ulysses, because it, it's a big commitment. I think 20th century Irish literature is ridiculous. And I brought two into this, but there's a guy called John McGahan, his novels are just astonishing and his, his autobiography as well is just wonderful. I come from an Irish background, my parents uh, came here when they were teenagers, uh, they basically ran away to get work at the time when there was such depression in Ireland post-war and all that stuff about immigration and emigration and finding communities and broken communities and, uh, and the Catholic culture and how much that does and doesn't apply. That, that I'm, I kind of grew up with that. The way I describe it to people, and most people who know this, who experience it, would say they recognise it. As a child, um, the word home referred to somewhere else. Yes. I'm not saying that bleating, because it was just the word home. Are you going home this year? didn't mean are you going back to where you live it meant are you going to where your home is which is across the sea so the one of one of the ones I brought along um, is Colm Toybin who I used to read a, a huge amount anyway and this was made into a film it's a wonderful film but the book as ever it's always the way the book is always better than the film however good the film is so I brought Brooklyn one of his more recent works there's this thing for me anyway and it may be a kind of a cultural recognition or a or a deep, deep prejudice, probably a bit of both. Uh, maybe they're the same thing. This thing about prose writing with this group of Irish writers is just really subtle and gentle and pointed. And suddenly you realise you've been hit really hard without knowing it um, by a, just a passage describing a scene or a, a journey or a conversation. Toybin for me is probably one of the masters of that, extraordinary. But the narrative of Brooklyn is very, very simple stuff, but hugely meaningful. It's the story of a young woman who goes to live in America, a classic part of the Irish diaspora. And I relate to her because the woman is a bit like my mom. Uh, she goes in different circumstances and for different reasons. Uh, but that whole sense of losing your family to go abroad for different reasons and the, the, the challenges of that and the, the decisions to be made, but also the, the traditional parts of Irish culture as was butting into modern culture there in America or elsewhere just beautifully beautifully written and differently but similar just I'll move straight on there's a guy called William Trevor so William Trevor is another uh, Irish writer a Cork man um, from County Cork my mum was from the city of Cork and prolific author uh, again a fantastic prose style tended to write more about England and Englishness I think maybe as a, an observer in his earlier novels. Later novels he went back into themes of how Ireland was changing uh, as independence came along. There's a, there's a compilation of his short stories. William Trevor does something about going into the, the harsh underbelly of people and places. It, it can be quite disturbing when he gets to work with his scalpel on people and places. But Love and Summer I love as a novel because it's, it's a poignant, challenging at times slightly worrying on some levels but it's basically it's a love story you know uh, and it's it's very different from some of his early work in my opinion one of the reasons i love it is it's a thriller the pace of it just ups towards the end as to whether or not they will 
and I won't say any more about it because I really regret it, but it just, it becomes a page turner from having been this very elegiac, gentle narrative about rural Ireland. It moves from that gentle pace into this will they, won't they, and are they going to miss each other, and are they going to catch each other, and it's brilliant for that, I think. One that we haven't talked about that's on the table, and obviously we'll come to Winnie the Witch in just a while, but because um, I was conscious, I, there aren't many women in this. George Eliot is obviously close, but a man's name, interesting, in terms of Dickens, but I favour the Dickens cartoon characters. Uh, but this is a book, this is a, a textbook, a factual book, rather than the fiction. Susan Brownmiller, Against Our Will. Uh, and I read that on the recommendation of a mentor of mine some time ago when I was doing work around uh, child sexual exploitation and abuse. And uh, she pointed me to that book. I don't know if you know it, but I, I honestly think it should be, I think boys should be made to read it. It's awful. It's about rape. It's a history of rape. It's a dreadful read. And I can point to different books. Ulysses might be there. Oliver Twist might be there. You know, the books are moment-changing reads of your life. Against Our Will is one of them, definitely, to the point where, you know, you're halfway or two-thirds of the way through it, think, I can't do much more of this which is obviously an appalling thing, you must finish it, and I just think boys should be made to read it. And it was published in the mid-70s, mm. and it was, um, I think, seen as a kind of landmark text, yeah. and the first time discussion had been had yeah. about issues like that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it gets categorised as, oh, it's one of those books that says all men are rapists, and it doesn't say that at all, it's a, and it goes into that conversation and that argument really, really clearly. It's not saying that at all, but it's saying that all men have the capacity to rape. And in, in the way that everybody has the capacity to violence, and, uh, but it's a particular form of violence. Uh, what's devastating but really important about the book is its cataloguing of rape and, and how it is used and how it's marshalled and how it takes place through domestic violence, through, through to war crimes and deliberate war crime. It's astonishingly difficult to read, but brilliantly put together and unarguable. When you get to the end of it, your arguments are over. There's one that's not here, that on the flip side, going back into fiction, which, um, again, the daughter's got it, and I haven't mentioned it, but a particular favourite of mine, linked to what you were saying about metaphor and, and how you relate things, is John le Carre. I first read Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Uh, I'd seen the series and thought it was very, very good and quite enjoyed it. Hadn't read the book, but I first read the book, coincidentally, when I was first doing a really serious and extraordinarily difficult staff investigation into a child abuser. And it was a very, very contentious investigation. And doing the investigation was um, phenomenally stressful and upsetting and uh, stayed with me all that time. That was one of those professional turning points, which we all have, you know, you decide what, where's your career going to be. And in childcare terms, what side are you on? And while I was doing that investigation, which absolutely put me to the edge. I was only in my, I was just about 30. Uh, and I happened to pick up a copy of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and started reading it. And without trying to aggrandize myself as a George Smiley, which I am not, <laughs> the thing about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and most Le Carre is it's, it's obviously they're spy stories, they're really well crafted, they're really engaging and they're really interesting and they're also profound social commentaries. Tinker Tailor is a, a commentary on post-war, post-empire England and England particularly but it's also for me a tremendous management text. I absolutely because it, it makes you think deeply about how organizations take decisions, it makes you think deeply about how you challenge those decisions if they happen to be wrong, it makes you think deeply about how organizational cultures 
take a particular turn. And if they take that turn and you're not part of it, not much you're going to do about it. But it also talks deeply about, about issues of loyalty and betrayal, obviously, but the causes of betrayal and the nature of betrayal. It's an astonishing read. I'll go back to the BBC series every couple of years, late at night, and I'll go back to reading Tinker Taylor every year or two because I regard it as an absolute management text. You've mentioned, John, about your background being leading children's services. Yeah. Let's talk about Winnie the Witch then. Okay. It's on the table. Is it something you've enjoyed sharing? Um, well, I just, I'm going to be flagrant now and do a plug. I brought Winnie the Witch because I thought I needed to bring a, a children's book for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because of the joy of reading to children and helping children start reading and, and my own experience of that. The kids picked it up when they were tiny and it was one of those books which most of us who are parents who read to our children, which I hope all parents will do. It was one of those books which they just kept, kept on saying night after night, well, we want Winnie, we want Winnie. So you'd have to read it again and again and again. I don't know how many times I've read this. I note that we've kept it. It's an absolute battered book, uh, this version of it, but we kept it. And it's a great story about a witch who abuses a cat by changing its colour too often. I won't spoil the ending for you because <laughs> it's an absolute page turner. And our kids loved it. But I also wanted to put it in because, the, and the plug is that I'm chair of trustees for an organisation called Book Trust, which is a children's reading charity. And um, that's a fun, I've been doing that for three years and I've got another three, just under short of three years to go with, with Book Trust. And they're a wonderful organisation. They work nationally and they're a book gifting service. And so they work with Hampshire County Council. They work with every single upper tier authority. They provide free books in different ways to distribute to different age groups of children. One of the things that I've been doing with them carefully without giving up on universal book gifting as a fundamental pillar of just helping children to enjoy reading for pleasure. It's not about banging on about their education. There's obviously an offshoot about how important it is for education, but it's about giving children the life-changing opportunity to fall into books and disappear and live other people's worlds and, and get the magic of words and get the unopening of their own imaginations. And that's what books do. They're extraordinary. And book, book trust is wonderful at that. We're steering book trust a little bit because what we know is if, if you put 10 families in a room and gave them all a book, those families would respond to that book in different ways. And, and Book Trust is trying to do more to make sure if we're a universal book gifting service, we have to try harder to be universal to more excluded families. So that's what we're doing at the moment. So I brought Winnie as a plug for Book Trust. I'm oh, afraid wonderful. shameless, shameless. Wonderful. And I know Hampshire Libraries are absolutely huge fans of Book Trust. Good. We give the book start packs away at baby rhyme time. And absolutely that, that importance of reading for pleasure, yeah. not because it's a chore, not because it's something you have to do, but it's because it's something you want to do. And at a time like this, um, in terms of empathy, in, help, in terms of helping people feel less alone, there are so many reasons and we absolutely agree on that front. With that in mind, what sort of future do you see for libraries in, in a modern society? I see a future. I think libraries are wonderful and I think they're a huge asset to communities and to places. But in a modern society, libraries have to modernise too. I, I personally believe as well, because in Book Trust we, we speak a lot about how, how much more we need to do around digital books. But I believe, I, it might be my age, I might be going, but I believe deeply in the physical book. I think it's a remarkable thing, um, whether a picture book or, or a, a mixed book or just a, a written book, just a written book. 
remarkable things, tactile objects, which I, I haven't kept all of my books. It's shocking to see how many aren't there when you think about it. It's shocking to see the ones I have kept. But having a community resource of books where people know they can go is hugely, hugely important. The journey that Hampshire's been on recently, I know it's been controversial, but it's got to happen nationally. I have this argument with Book Trust because they, they're obviously a champion of books and champion of libraries for themselves. But what I'm saying to my colleagues in Book Trust is the public sector is changing, the world is changing. If we want to have libraries as vibrant, real places that people can trust, then they've got, we've got to make them relevant and we've got to make them used and we've got to make sure that they can keep pace with their, their own viability. And if we don't, and if we defend them saying, no, this library's been here for 200 years and the fact that nobody uses it or, it's, or we can't afford to buy books for it because we're paying the heating bill for it, then that's going to wither on the vine. I think that would be dreadful and I think the library service and the people running it, if the library service is, is serious about itself, it must continue to modernise. And that will happen in jumps and challenges and changes and I know you're wonderful at that. But protecting our libraries as buildings in corners of streets is not protecting our libraries as viable, important community resources that are going to be meaningful. I think it is wonderful that some of the libraries that we had to move away from in, in our recent review have been picked up by the communities. I think that's fantastic, but that's not to say that we took the wrong decision. That's great. If, that, if, if the decisions we took inspired people to get more involved, that's great. But we'll, we have to keep modernising. We have to keep looking at what the future is going to hold, because otherwise you won't create libraries, you'll create unused museums of books, and that's not what they should be for. They should be vibrant places that people use and go to. Absolutely, and I think in the last year, the pandemic has really shown a new future for libraries in terms of, I know you're, you're not uh, necessarily your digital go-to as your first resort, but two and a half million digital issues in it's one tremendous. year. It's tremendous. It's amazing. Extraordinary. But also, as you say, for many of my colleagues in library services, there is nothing better than seeing a baby who can't walk and can't talk yet chewing the corner of a book, yeah. a, a board book. They're not reading it, but they're doing it. But that is their first engagement with the world of storytelling and words. Yeah. And, and it's a wonderful thing to see. And I think in the future, beyond the pandemic, when communities want to come back together, libraries will be there for them. Too. Yeah, yeah. And another version of that, when I was last round, I think it was in, in Rushmore when I saw this, seeing a toddler check themselves out. Just take the book to the reader. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just like click and off they go, what? <laughs> How did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. It sounds as if John's going to be busy catching up on his reading during his retirement. I've already reserved a couple he mentioned as I really enjoyed his recommendations. Yeah, there's nothing like a book recommendation straight from the mouth of someone else, especially if it's something I've not read before. It always, always inspires me to try something new. I've also started reading the recommendations of another of our colleagues from our library blog this month. Jeremy, our events officer, has picked out a really eclectic mix including John Ronson's books, and I'm now listening to one of those as an audiobook. You'll find a link to this blog on our podcast show notes. Of course, the big news this month is that we've just had the start of the annual summer reading challenge, which is all about encouraging primary school children to get into the book reading habit over the summer, when literacy levels can otherwise dip. It runs through to September, so you've got plenty of time to get kids involved. There's lots going on inside our library as well as loads of reviews and puzzles and activities through our Kids' Own web pages on our website. You can collect certificates and stickers at each step of the challenge and earn a medal if you read six books. 
It's been lovely to see children back inside library buildings choosing their books and also back at rhyme time sessions, which at the time of recording you need to book ahead for. But it's not just children that we're seeing back inside libraries and not just for borrowing books and magazines either. We're really looking forward to seeing people return to using our study spaces, meeting with groups and clubs and using our public computers and printing services too. You'll find the latest on how we're getting life back to normal at libraries on our website. Which means there's just time to mention a few titles included in our unlimited collection on BorrowBox for the month. These are the ebooks and audiobooks which you don't have to wait to download to read or listen to, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. One book I've already downloaded is When They Call You a Terrorist, which is written by Patrice Khan Cullors, one of the three women who co-founded the Black Lives Matter campaign. It's the story of how the movement was born and it's got photos and journal entries. It's fascinating stuff. There's also Marza Mengeste's acclaimed novel, The Shadow King, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. It's set during Mussolini's 1935 invasion of Ethiopia and shines a light on the women soldiers not usually credited in African history. As usual, one of the featured titles for July is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's Eye of the Needle, Ken Follett's breakthrough international bestseller, originally published back in 1978, so a bit of a classic. It's a spy thriller about Henry Faber, Germany's most feared undercover agent in Britain. So download the book and join in the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. That's it for our pick of BorrowBox for the month. And thanks once again to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac. <laughs>